This is awesome, this passage. I love this. Uh, but I'm going to ask God to, to speak to us. I know whatever we want to do here at church, um, we can never create a moment that would overwhelm your will. Actually, for you to interact with God, he's got to be there. So, Father, we ask that you'd speak. We ask that um, we'd not be hindered by the limitations of, of my thoughts or words. Father, I thank you that um, we can actually talk to you and ask for you to help. And we ask, Father, that you would speak in a way that is so real that it's undeniable that you've spoken to us. We've encountered you through the Bible, through people tonight. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's no picture up there. We've had a series, second week, on the church, the nature of the church. So one week to go next week, and we're going to be in this book again, this little letter. Um, and last week, we, we, we learned that the church is a home. It's a home for God, and it's a home for people, people who could never find a home together, but only because God is involved, people who are extremely different from each other on all sorts of levels, humanly speaking, can actually have a bond that... Uh, surpasses other types of bonds. So church is a home for God and people. And one of the main things the church is called to do is pass on their faith to the next generation. Does that make sense? To pass it on. That's one of the main things we're called to do. And when you hear about the idea of the next generation being, uh, some people call it discipled, encouraged to follow Jesus, usually you think of parenting. The Western brain says, if we're talking about bringing up kids, we're thinking of schools and parents. And a lot of you might go, well, this isn't for me. This talk's not a talk for me. This is not a theme for me. You know, you might go, well, I know I'm single. You might be someone who's older or you don't have kids. Um, But that's not how the Bible understands the whole subject of raising the next generation. Uh, It's the idea of that it takes a village to raise a child is what you see in the scriptures, that children are born into a type of community. Um, In fact... The man who wrote that letter um, was a childless single guy and he addressed it in verse 2. He said, to Timothy, my dear son, or my beloved child. That's how the Bible talks. If, if, if you're investing in someone's life, nurturing them in following Jesus, in some way there's a level, we know there's level of responsibility, like parents have more responsibility than someone who's not a parent. But the Bible doesn't see it the way we do. We usually go, oh, that's the parent. But that's not the way God sees it. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. Uh, this is the last red letter written by Paul. He wrote it from prison and he wrote it to his protege, Timothy. Um, and, and the prison conditions were worse than other ones. He'd written other letters like Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon from prison but it was like a place in Acts 28 of house arrest. So there's a rented home, there's a soldier with him all the time, but he had far more access to friends, people would come in and out. This is different. He was in the, the lower regions of a place called the Mamertine Dungeon. Apparently in the lower region was where all the refuse of, of that facility ends. Um, so he was far more separate from people. He only had one colleague most of the time, Luke, with him. Uh, so just to imagine this guy, he's done three to four big missionary journeys, written about 13 letters during the scriptures. Hundreds of people have come to Christ because of him. Lives have been changed. And he knows his death is imminent. That we know shortly after this was written, 
that he was formally charged and taken outside and beheaded in 65 to 70 BC. He was charged with sedition, uh, uh, going up against the, the, the empire because of his beliefs and, and choices to follow Jesus and talk about him. That was a threat to the empire, so his life ends. But what, what, what would you do if you knew you could pretty much pick the date of when you're going to leave this world? Who would you try and contact and what would you want to say to them? This is, along with 2 Corinthians, his personal letter. These, these two are his two personal letters that he's written we've got in the Bible. It's very affectionate, this man Timothy. Actually, you see his love and admiration for this young guy on like oozing through the letter. So verse 1, he calls him his beloved child. Verse, oh, verse 2, verse 3, he tells him he prays for him all the time. Uh, verse 4, he makes it clear that he misses him dreadfully. And in the last chapter, he's saying, I can't wait to see you. In fact, could you please try to come while there's a chance for you to come and be with me and we can see each other? What would you say? What would you re- think about? He, he was more reflective in this letter than, than others. He's, uh, some people say this is like his last will and testament. He's pushing near 70 years old. He's served God for 40 years. And so he, he's, the tone of what he's trying to say, you get it in chapter 3, verse 14 here. He says, listen to this, but as for you, talking to this guy, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. So he highlights the fact that this guy from a kid had access to the Bible and it's very important to say what a privilege that is. There's a lot of people in our church who could tell the same story that they got to have the Bible in their life as kids. But he's saying, look, I'm about to end my life. I'm I'm finishing the race. I want to make sure you finish the race well too. You continue what we've started. He's saying, the things that you're convinced of, can you take, Timothy, what you know that you know that you know, I want you to pass it on to other people. And, And this letter, although it's very personal, clearly written to this man who's going to lead in different ways in this this community, it's also written clearly for the community. Um, I mean, it's a bit weird if I wrote you, like if I wrote my son Lockie a letter and said, uh, this is from Martin, one of the pastors at Camelltown City Baptist Church. It'd be like an unnecessary point to make. Of course, of course I know that's what you do, Dad. You know, so there's this reality that this is written not, not actually just for people to overhear a conversation, but it's written to the whole community. He's reinforcing this man's role. Why and, and what Timothy's role is. He's a man of God, and so his main role is the Word of God. This is his main ministry. There's so many things that he reinforces about his life. We'll look and dig into more of that next week. So the whole letter is about passing the faith on to the next generation. Actually, in fact, at chapter 2, verse 2, Paul is looking four generations out. This wonderful little statement. He says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be able to teach it to others. So basically says, what you've learnt from me, pass it on to others. Who's going to pass it on to others? It's a four-generation-long thing of passing the faith on. And he's not talking primarily about parenting. He doesn't even have kids of his own. It's about passing the faith on to the next generation. And he doesn't just look forward in this, like the next and the next. He's looking back. So in verse 5, He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which had lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, 
And I'm persuaded also lives in you. So he's saying, listen, you got your faith from three other people. I saw that happen. And so he's tracing the ancestry of this guy's faith and saying, just stop and think about the people who brought you to God. Now I want you to pass this on to others. And so this is a context where Paul gets Timothy three big focus points in this section to help him um, hold or guard what's been entrusted to him and then pass that on. And the three big things he says to focus on is faith, suffering and grace. Faith, suffering and grace, the unmerited favour of God. That last verse, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which I saw in your grandma. It's a beautiful way he describes it. He actually says your grandmama, Lois. Very affectionate terms here. And he's saying, I saw it. Very significant. So I don't know if, if you think this is just too obvious, it's unnecessary to say, but it's not like that. This is actually essential as far as Paul's concerned. If you're thinking about passing faith on to the next generation, what's real or alive in your life is essentially connected. So he's saying, I saw real faith, sincere faith in your grandma in your mum, and now I've, I've seen it in you, but this is essential for passing it on. Stop and think about how important it is. Frankly, in Christian homes, there's a lot of talk, and there always should be a lot of talk, but kids have to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do you agree with me? Like, what's it look like? What, I mean, how does it work? What happens when things go wrong? Where's God when... When life's difficult. And this is pointing into the reality, human reality, that we don't so often do what we're told. We do what we're shown. You know what I mean? That's very true for little kids, and it's embarrassingly true for your own kids. So a little while ago, Lockie walks up to the fridge, he opens it up, grabs the apple juice, starts sculling it, and I come up behind and go, what are you doing? Freak him out. And then Sarah goes, Dad, he learned that from you. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, you don't realise that. Or there's so often there's things like this that, that, yeah, we don't do what we're told, we do what we're shown. Um, so it's a powerful reality as humans, but I want, I want to say in this area, there's two things to say about it. It's, it's not a guarantee and it's also not a threat. It's not a guarantee that just because you're living this faith out in a sincere, genu- genuine way, that your kids are going to follow suit. I don't think it's right to do a a how-to thing, that this is how you have the perfect Christian family. This is how you can ensure that anyone... I said that before. You can't impose belief on someone. You actually, as much as um, breakaway Christian groups that become unchristian have tried to do that and force convergence on people in Christian in history, you can't do it. I can't make you become anyone you don't already want to become. That's just a human reality. And so the idea uh, of how you pass your faith on, it essentially has to begin with, what are you living out? What's, what's seen in you? But for parents, we know the fact is there's a lot of great Christian parents where not all their children are believers. And that's something. That's, so this is not a guarantee that it's going to happen. The other thing, it's also not a threat. 
You can be, just because you're not a Christian doesn't mean your children aren't going to be believers. That's very possible too. And all of us probably know families like that as well. So this is all, this idea that we, we do what we're shown more than what we're told is also something you see very clearly in mainstream research. Like um, a non-Christian association of religion archives in the UK did a landmark study a number of years ago trying to connect the, the dots between young people um, as adults being active in their parents' faith and, and what were the main drivers. And they said far and away the biggest influence on that were parents who practice what they preach and preach what they practice. The correlation was 82%. That's, a story, that's almost deterministic. That's a huge thing. And, and actually what they mean by that was families that will speak about their faith at home, like it's normal to talk about it, they still hold the importance of their own beliefs and values and they're active in a faith community. So if those three things are maintained, it's a very high percentage of people that follow their parents' footsteps. Um, I'm saying that to encourage you. The truth is, in our society, when we talk about kids and next generation, most of the parents put extra pressure on themselves, thinking, well, this is all up to me. The Bible says, hey, it's not just up to you, but there is a prime responsibility there, and you should be encouraged. If that's the correlation, if it's around that even, this tells us something that's a fact, that faith is actually more caught than taught. Does that make sense? It, like you actually catch what you, you live with and learn. And this is important because it can be very intimidating as a parent. How do I bring up this kid? How do I do all the bits? They don't come with batteries included. They, don't, they didn't read the books. And, and, and how do I talk about God? Some of you feel tongue-tied when it comes to the Bible or faith. And the, the figures speak for themselves. This is not about being a great orator. is a connection between practicing what you preach, preaching what you practice, and that being a very solid foundation for the possibilities. Um, the other thing that's very important to notice as another encouragement is despite this guy's fear, Timothy, and Paul's impending death, death, in verse 14, he's also convinced that the Holy Spirit will keep and guard what's entrusted to him, not just Timothy has to guard this. That's an incredible confidence. And really, in everyday words, that means God's at work in this whole thing of passing on the faith of the next generation, even when it doesn't feel like he is. It's just, it's just a fact that God is active in this area. Um, so at an early point in my parents' marriage, my dad came to my mum and said, I'm leaving church, I'm never going back. This is not up for discussion. I'm pulling out of all the kids' stuff I do with the church. Also, I forbid you to be involved in any active ministry in the church and I forbid you to read the Bible with the kids, do devotions and pray at night because they'll get closer to you than me. They're literally the words. And he said, no, we're not talking about it. Done. So, so and, and I know some of you may be in horror in the fact that that's how he spoke to her and it's actually offensive, isn't it? And maybe the first thing to notice about my mum, she was a woman who struggled with fear. Big time. Um, this passage, you can know in this passage, you can be a Christian and struggle with fear because Timothy is a Christian who struggles with fear. The word in verse 7 um, about being timid 
is a very important giveaway. And many other things. Paul talks about him not being ashamed. Timothy has an inclination to run away from the challenge of the shame of being connected to this man who's an inmate and, and, and what that's going to mean if he's aligned with him. And, and so for this, this is where my mum's world imploded. God, what have you done? I've married this Christian guy, I thought, and, and now what's this mean? How am I going to bring these kids up? Uh, she would come back from Christian conferences feeling demoralised for women that, that would say, you do these five things, you do these three things. She's going, how do I do that? What do I do? She didn't realise that you, you, you could say no to something like that. You could say, hold on, Alec, not a chance. And actually her, her, we, we, we found her diplomas from Bible college. <laughs> I think um, 80-something was the lowest mark. There was one that had it, everything else was 91, 98, 97. She was a very gifted Bible student and, and teacher later in life. So for her, this is like, how am I going to bring these kids up? And the amazing thing is, the truth is, God's at work. This is meant to be an encouragement to parents. When it doesn't look like it. And, and the thing for us was, that later in life, mum said, uh, I let you guys down big time. And we said, not a chance. Because we saw a genuine and sincere faith. We didn't have all the bells and whistles. But actually seeing it was a money breaker, a deal breaker. That was okay. We saw her genuinely hanging on to God and her character was what actually had a huge effect on my sister and I. And so be encouraged, God's at work in this thing of passing on the faith, even when it doesn't look like it, doesn't feel like it. And so this, is, this, is, this whole section could be spoken of in terms of the idea of Christian faith. It's a comprehensive picture of Christian faith. And if you're going to look at this, it's not just faith that's visible or maybe sincere or real in your life. What Paul's talking about here is initially the foundation of faith, which is, which is more synonymous with belief. If you've crossed the line of faith, there was a time where you didn't believe and now you do. It's, it's the idea that there's something you believe. And it's actually quite a hard thing often. And one of the main reasons why it's difficult is God is because God is just not like us at all. He's loving us with an unconditional love. He says, I love you without condition. We grow up learning conditional love. We want that. We want someone to say, you meet the condition, right? It's a weird thing to, to, to have your life fueled by love. Without condition. So I was reminded a few weeks ago about a typical conversation for Martine and I in the first sort of three years of marriage. She might actually say it a little bit different, but she, there would have been something like, hey, why do you love me? And if I was trying to um, do my best as, a, a, as a, a Christian husband, trying to say something about unconditional love, I would say, well, I, I love you for no reason at all. I just want to suggest you never answer that question. It's always a trap. She will always hear what you didn't say, not what you did. But she's pretty much like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, um, there's no reason that I love you. <laughs> just not working, eh? <laughs> like, oh, it's nice to know. <laughs> it's the sort of response you'd have to get. <laughs> it's good to know. There is nothing about me that makes you love me. See, I reckon 
most of us don't want unconditional love. Most of us want conditional love. And frankly, that's pretty much all I had for her. We're not used to someone saying, I love you without condition. I love you like verse 9, not because of anything you've done. I love you without condition is what God says. Because even if there were conditions, you couldn't meet them. And so if you've crossed the line of faith, you're believing then that God's good, that he's for you, that he sees you, and you matter to him. Now, I, I don't think that's just a wonderful thing about belief in God. That's also a change in belief about yourself. It's huge, actually. If you just say, I don't care what anyone else says, I don't even care what I say about myself, I don't care what the evidence of my past says, but God says he created me in his image and he doesn't just say he loves me, he entered human history and died so I could live. So I'm stepping into that belief. That's the foundational idea of faith in terms of belief. And there's a powerful picture here of two very wonderful things. One is the activity or sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. I want you to read verse 9 and 10. This is Paul's description in this passage of the gospel thing. The good news, you probably heard that. The grace of God. He says from verse 9, he, talking about God, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Here's that statement. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's a very powerful description. There's, a, there, there's four very important word pairs um, Paul gives Timothy here to see what God's done. He says he called and saved. And then he says, not because, but because. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his purpose and grace. He says, then grace was given and grace was revealed. And get it, it was, re- it was given before the beginning of time. God has always been like this, in love, really. His posture to you is all before the beginning of time, right? Grace was given before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. God's posture to you has always been for your good. And then he says grace is revealed when Jesus shows up and then destroying death, bringing life. It's a powerful picture. So Paul describes the gospel completely in terms of God's actions. They derive out of his purpose and grace. In fact, the first verse says, I'm Paul, an apostle, which means a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul says his whole life comes out of the mind of God. That's the whole. You wouldn't be here if God didn't dream this thing up. Now, now, it's a mistake to think, all right, I don't have to do anything. It's all being done. If God wants something to happen, it'll just happen. A lot of people think that's an okay response to this. And I want to say that's actually an unchristian response to this. The only right response to this is verse 6. Fan into flame the gift of God in you. He says, I want to remind you to fan into flame what God has given you. Stoke the fires of your faith. In other words, in our language, maximise your potential in this life. 
Do everything you can to leverage your opportunities, your gifts, your mind, your, your situation, your resources, your relationships, your time. Maximise your opportunities in this life. Isn't that amazing? God's completely behind this and you are called to radically live this out. If you're going to be involved in passing on your faith to the next generation, that's what it's based on and that's how it looks. So I hope you can see this thing of faith, it started foundationally the idea of belief and now it is more about trust. This is in the realm of things you can see and touch. It's really in the realm of possibilities of real life. The the issue when you think about what it might mean to maximise your life, whatever that looks like, it means can I trust God with my life? And I think it's more complicated than we usually want to admit. If you're honest, can't, can't you agree that it can be very frustrating to try and do this, (laughs) to actually trust God with the reality of real life. This isn't just the foundation of belief that he's good. No, no, no. Can I trust God with my life as I I head to school or uni to work or stay at home? Whatever the things I'm doing, can I trust him with this? You know... Doesn't it feel sometimes like God has no idea what's going on? After all, he's old school. The world's changed a lot since Adam and Eve. Has he kept up with all the changes? Is he up to date here? Because a lot of you struggle with frustration because someone's told you to have faith means you got the advantage, you got the leg up. You'll get the girl, you'll get the job, you'll get the, you'll win the, you'll, you know? Like some people describe having faith as the defining advantage for your life. And it's just not. It's subversive here. Actually, the reality is, if you're going to trust God with your life, you'll often feel like you're the tortoise in a race of hares. There are other people who will get the job, not you. There, there are other people who will win. You'll feel like, God, my life is flying by. Because this idea of trusting God with your life is trusting God with the idea that who you're becoming is more important than anything you're accomplishing. That, that's the emphasis here. Have, have a look at what's verse 7. After he says, fan into flame what God's done in you, he says, verse 7, for the Spirit of God gave us, God, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid. There's that word. Apparently in English that's a weak word. It, it, it's more a word of cowardice to run off a battlefield. It, it, it's less timid. Timid's too weak. But it's obviously there's a thing about Timothy who's timid and, and naturally shies away from this sort of, from being someone who can stand his ground in life. It's not a problem for God because he says God gives us a spirit that it's not about making you timid but gives us power, love, and a sound mind, or power, love, and self-discipline. And this is the the fundamental part of what God's going to do in your life. talks about the Holy Spirit living in us in verse 14 and all through the letter. The reality is whatever the Holy Spirit's doing, that's his focus. His focus is on the reality of who you're becoming. 
And if something's going to frustrate the heck out of you, you say, God, I don't want you to work on me. I want you to fix my life. I want to face so I could succeed or propel forward or do the things that I'm hoping. No, I don't want you to work on me. But, but that's actually the thing. If you're going to trust God with your life, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's always going to be working more on who you're becoming, not what you do. Um, I've got something for you. So just think about the reality. Some of you have seen this recently, but um, I haven't brought the fruit out for a while. I like fruit. It's my two favourite fruits, bananas and watermelons. And, but the concept here is more foundational than just fun and games. This is... Um, I contend when you go to the shop, you don't buy bananas, but you buy banana peels. Because you don't get there, put it on the way thing and go, hold on a sec, I better check. Oh yeah, I'll have that one. Uh, not have, you don't do that, right? I reckon you only buy a banana peel because you wouldn't know. Have we got a volunteer to test one out for me? Anyone want to catch this? Or look like it? So I don't hurt you. Okay, Benjamin. Oh, we've got banana pudding somewhere down the back there. Okay, Ben, what do you got in your hands? You ha- oh, banana peel. You don't believe it's a banana? There's a banana in there. How do you know? <laughs> okay, he's, he's, he's race. He hasn't followed my instructions, but that's, that's okay. Ben, that is good. That is good. You've opened the, you've opened the box. Let's have a look at the banana. You're still not sceptical enough, pal, because it could be synthetic. Who knows? Um, you're, not gull- you're too gullible. Can you give us a taste test if you're not allergic? Oh, right. <laughs> what's, your, what, what's your conclusion, mate? Okay, in fact, a banana. What looked like a banana peel is actually a banana. The fact is, that's how God works. The reason why... You can keep eating, by the way. The reason why... Um, you don't have to undo these and open them up at the shop. It's because when God creates, you know this intrinsically, he always creates with integrity. So what the outside communicates is actually consistent with the inside. But when we, what we create lacks integrity. It's called hypocrisy. We naturally want to put something in front and hide what's underneath. My favourite fruit by far is a watermelon. You ready this time, Ben? <laughs> Okay, just do a quick brief summary. How do, you, how do you buy a good one of these? What do you do? Quick. You knock it. What are you doing? Oh, you weigh it. Oh, I never knew that. Okay. That's a good one. This is, this is heavy. Is there anything else I do to make sure it's a good one, though? I knock it, you said. What am I doing? Anyone in there? Hello. Is that, is that, what am I listening for? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I think this is the weird thing, like, because... Lights are dim, but you look educated. So what you're telling me is... Oh, Martin, sorry. <laughs> but the thing is, you're telling me, right? Is this, this right? You go to the shop, you knock on it, and if it sounds like there's nothing inside, you buy it. It <laughs> is a little bit weird. So here's the thing. We don't need a machete to smash it up and check there's watermelon flesh in there because you know when God creates, he creates with integrity, right? That's communicating inside what's on the outside. The thing is, we naturally lack integrity. 
The truth is we naturally want to hide what's inside. That's called hypocrisy. Every human's a hypocrite in transition, good or bad, all of us. People say it's hypocrites in the church, absolutely, and out of the church. <laughs> but what God wants to do in you, if you step into a relationship with Jesus, he's going to always create with integrity. So he's always going to strengthen the reality of what's inside. So what is outside is consistent with who you are. It's a pretty good thing to remember, isn't it? Because this is what the Christian life looks like. The word fruit in the New Testament is always connected to what God's doing in your character. Those three words, power, love and self-discipline, are character words. They're, they're connected to the life of Jesus. Apparently his kingly, his priestly and his prophetic work are lined up with those three. So what God wants to share with you is who he is in his character. And this is essential. It's essential if you're going to think about passing faith on to the next generation. By the way, this is not just about little kids, not just about primary school kids. It's anyone, any age. When the book of Acts happened, they didn't say, oh, no, we're only talking to primary school kids or we're only talking to adolescents. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter the age. When you're passing the baton of faith on, it's any age. You're 80, 40, 60, 20. Reality is God's always going to step into the character of a person, and this is, this is crucial when we think as a church what it means to advance what it means to give, who, who do you give authority to? Who do you create opportunities for? Because that's what these letters discuss. How do you work that out? And so I think we've got to be willing to say, on the basis of that text we just read, you've got to drill down underneath leadership, underneath competencies and gifts and talents and abilities, and underneath leadership, the fundamental core is character because character always leads, always leads. We're just so often willing to be satisfied somewhere mediocre, I think, on this. We say things in our head like, well, I'm better than the devil. <laughs> I think the real reason why most churches struggle in the West to grow is not because they don't have a good system or strategy, is because the church has allowed evil to dominate in the body of Christ. And evil has the, the capacity to lead. And neutral will never overcome evil. Character always leads. It's the fundamental principle. I mentioned it this morning. I didn't intend it, but if you go and read First Thessalonians, Paul talks about a church that he describes in chapter 1 as a model congregation to all of Macedonia. They're becoming well-known. But this model congregation, he doesn't bring up structure, strategy, approach, organisational tactics, anything. He just talks about who they're becoming. That their work is uh, prompted by love. That they live a life of faith and they're a voice of hope. That's about who they're becoming. It's an astonishing idea that that's the focus of every New Testament letter. It's amazing how we get wowed by gifts not just our own, other people's. We go, wow, that girl, that guy, they're amazing at this, they're amazing at that. Give them responsibility. Give them responsibility. Give them opportunity. You just translate this to any part of your life. God cares about who you date. We're called to trust God with our life, right? Some of us decide to trust the internet instead. Ooh. <laughs> 
Now, oh, I'm always going out with the wrong person. I need to find the right person. Um, maybe trusting God with my life is taking a bit of personal responsibility and becoming focused on becoming the right person. Don't worry about maybe, maybe the wrong person is attracted to you because you're not the right person yet. Does that make sense? There's something profound about deciding to trust God with my life. So he talks about faith. That's our point one. How are we going for time? Not real good. Okay. (laughs) This next one is also oozing through the letter, and it's not going to take as long, but it's suffering. There's a direct relationship between suffering and passing on the faith. Let me read quickly. Verse 8. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. And this is no cause for shame. So there's a relationship between suffering and shame, but there's a bigger connection between the idea of passing on the faith and being willing to what Paul said, join with me in suffering. In chapter 3, he says, anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. It's a conclusive, powerful statement. So you want to pass the faith on, it's going to be hard. It's a profoundly important idea. We're going to talk a bit more about what it means to endure in passing on the faith next week. Um, A very brief story I heard this week of a pastor who was leading um, a more Pentecostal church or, I don't know, charismatic church, I mean. Um, When he went into the area, he was was about 10 years ago to establish the congregation. He met local pastors and was quite discouraged because all of them wrote, wrote him off. He said, oh, you're happy clappy, basically. And he had this great line that says, it was better than humpy grumpy. But um, he, he sort of said, I, they, they wrote him off as, you just want to be happy about things all the time. You're just not being honest about life. But they weren't that type of charismatic, expressive church. They were just more expressive when they sang and, 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 and gathered. Anyway, this is what he, what he said. Um, then we got a few older saints that stuck with us and started dying. And then he said, if you think this is flaky, watch how people suffer and die and cling to the Lord. And he says, and then you'll know there is substance here. That's just a reality. A person's testimony that involves suffering has weight to it, doesn't it? It says there's something more to that and it's profound. And here's the thing, regardless of the age group, uh, by the way, we all need to see people who've gone further in us in life. If you're, if you're a parent of a teenager, you need to hang out with people who've, whose kids have grown up. If you've got a new baby, you need to be with people who've been through that stage. If, if you've got no kids, maybe you need to be with people who also have had no kids their whole life as a couple. Or maybe if you're single, maybe you need to be other people who are older and single. Or maybe if you're not retired yet, you need to hang out with people who've already been retired. I don't know what, what the thing is that's big for you. But here's something I know. All of us notice when other people hit a bump. You know, you stop and think about the people you admire. It tells you a lot about who you're becoming. Because remember, no one can make you become anything you don't already want to. So the people you admire, you actually watch them when they hit a bump. You watch what they do. Do they cover it up and pretend everything's fine? Do, do, they, um, do they walk away from their walk with God when it's bad and then come back when it's good? See, what happens when you see someone hit a bump in the road and they honestly grieve, cry out to God, worship in the storm, hang on for dear life with hope that one day it'll be better? See, when you see that in someone, that does something to you. People watch you when you choose to 
to, to, to hang on to God when you hit a bump. So this thing of suffering is very important. And, and the last piece, actually, we'll talk about the way these books are written more next week. But the obvious piece that we've already talked a bit about is the third piece, and it's about the grace of God. He says you've got to focus on the grace of God, but you actually are called to be a herald of the grace of God. Paul's life in all these letters is what they call a paradigm. It's like the, the amazing, it's like the basic picture of the Christian life, not just for his protege, Timothy, but for every Christian. That's how the Word of God talks about what it will be like for us. And it's very important to recognise that God doesn't call some people to evangelise. Evangelism is the only thing we're all commanded to do, even if we don't have the gift naturally. <laughs> he says, do the work of an evangelist. That means talk to other people about God. Talk about this grace thing. Not only live it out, not only try and be a person with integrity, allowing God to work on you. No, no, no. Talk about it. We in the Christian church have often had various... Um, languages of calling, you know, and I know a lot of people use it to their advantage. Oh, I'm not called to that. I'm not called to that. Some studies of churches have more than this, but here's an obvious one for many churches. They have five levels of calling in the Christian life. I'm called to be saved. I'm called to make Jesus my Lord. I'm called to full-time service. I'm called to home missions. I'm called to foreign missions. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that, but, but, but there's a, there's, there's a stepping up the ladder and, and we, we honour these people more than all the others. That's a language that just makes room for apathy and disinterest and even outright rebellion. Jesus has one idea of calling. We just read it. It's the entry point. He says we are saved and called to live a holy life. You're all called to be missionaries. It's just a matter of location. I don't see anything else in the book of Acts. It, it, it's a weird thing to make heroes of the ordinary Christian life. The first Christian martyr has the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and he was a guy who was asked to wait tables, Stephen. They said, you're a reliable bloke. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. He waits tables. And then has this most powerful sermon and changed the course of history. That's the normal Christian life. And so I want to encourage you to step into this with some fervour. If you're serious about the idea of passing on the face of the next generation. And since we've been talking about the next generation, I'm going to end with a beautiful um, storybook. Uh, these are for sale, 20 bucks each. It's a bargain, by the way. Um, I'm going to read, there's a couple of pages here. It's a wonderfully illustrated book. If, if you're someone who says, you know what? Maybe there's opportunity for me to interact with someone who's really young who would appreciate this. I think you should, you should get stuff like this, have resources in your home ready to go for the opportunities when you're childminding, you're helping a friend or whatever, maybe you could be reading this. Maybe this might help you. Maybe there's, some, there's older people sometimes who would love to have this read to them in hospital who can't go places. What a great way to pass on the faith. You just stop and think. God calls us to be imaginative in how that happens. So I'm going to read and then we're going to finish. Uh, this is a very brief, beautifully illustrated uh, summary of the life of Paul, okay? The guy who wrote that letter. It's titled A New Way to See. 
Of all the people who kept the rules, Saul was the best. I am good at being good, he'd tell you. He was very proud and very good, but he wasn't very nice. Saul hated anyone who loved Jesus. He travelled around and looked for them. He wanted to catch them and put them in prison. He wanted everyone to forget all about Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the rescuer, and he didn't believe Jesus was alive either. You see, Paul had never met Jesus. So one day, Jesus met Paul. Saul. Paul. Saul. (laughs) Saul was on his way to Damascus when suddenly a dazzling light flashed like lightning. It was brighter than the sun. It was too bright. Saul shielded his eyes and fell to the ground. He heard a loud voice. It, It was too loud. It gave Saul a headache. Saul, Saul, said the loud voice. Why are you fighting me? Lord, Saul answered, who are you? I am Jesus, said the voice. When you hurt my friends, you're hurting me too. Saul's whole body trembled. Go to the city, Jesus says, and I'll tell you what to do. When Saul opened his eyes, he couldn't see. His helpers had to hold his hand and lead him like a little child. Saul was blind for three whole days, and yet it was as if he was seeing for the very first time. Meanwhile, there was a man called Ananias who loved Jesus. Jesus came to him in a dream and said, Go to Saul and pray for him, and I will make him see again. Ananias knew all about Saul and how he hated Jesus' followers. Lord, he's come to hurt us. But Jesus told Ananias, Saul is the one I've chosen to tell the whole world who I am. So Ananias went to Saul. Brother Saul, Ananias said, it was Jesus you met on the road. And Ananias prayed for Saul. Suddenly, Saul could see again. But he saw everything differently. He wasn't mean anymore. He even changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means small and humble, the very opposite of proud. And do you know what Ananias means? The Lord is full of grace. Grace is just another word for gift, which is funny because that's what Paul's message was all about from then on. It's not about keeping rules, Paul told people. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. You just have to believe what Jesus has done and follow him. Because it's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about rules, it's about grace. God's free gift that cost him everything. What had happened to Paul? He met Jesus. Paul got a new job. He called himself a servant and travelled everywhere telling everyone about Jesus. He got shipwrecked three times. He even ended up in prison. God loves us, he wrote from prison. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God he showed us in Jesus. And so it was, just as God promised Abraham, that dark night all those years before, the family of God's children grew and grew until one day they will come to number more than even all the stars in the sky. That's awesome, eh? (laughs) That's awesome. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you that um, you give us the honour and privilege of joining you in expanding your kingdom and bringing people into your family. God, I thank you that you use us, people who are broken, people who are naturally selfish, 
but you, you call us to you. I thank you that you say to us, I love you without condition. God, I ask that for those of us here who wonder but who know they want to cross the line of faith, I ask that you would give them the courage to do that. That they might be able to say, Jesus, I give you my life. Father, I thank you that you change us, not, not so that we can be loved by you, but because we're loved by you. And Father, I ask that there will be other people because of our lives, those of us who know you here, who will also meet Jesus and be changed by him. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.